Arizona Boomer Radio presents Megan It, the show about people starting a business, trying to get their great idea developed, or transitioning to entrepreneurship. We also visit with the experts that have information about avoiding pitfalls when starting a business. Now it's time for Making It. Of 
you that don't know what a flash mob is, it's an appearance of a bunch of people all of a sudden simultaneously and quite unexpectedly supposedly getting together to sing, dance, recite, whatever, uh, and it's all as if it's all spontaneous, when in reality it really isn't, is it, Ruth? Well, for the for the audience who doesn't know that they're going to be experiencing a flash mob around them, it, it is a surprise. It is very spontaneous. For those of us who organize flash mobs, there's no surprises. We spend weeks preparing for an event, um, planning it, announcing it, getting people to participate, our photographers, our videographers, um, all of that. Uh, and then on my end, I do all the legal research to make sure that what we do, when we do it, we're not going to get sued or arrested after the fact. So, yes, quite a bit of planning actually goes into putting a flash mob together, uh, but with the ultimate goal of having the audience the unsuspecting audience be surprised and entertained by this spontaneous performance that goes on around them. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, in many cases uh, there is a message, and, and it may be a commercial message. Is that correct? Hello? Hello? Are you there? Have we lost Ruth? Have we lost Ruth? It looks like we may have lost her. Uh, she is still on the board here, but I but I don't know what's happened to uh, happened to her voice, which is not coming through. If uh, Ruth, if you can hear me, um, please call back in. Uh, I don't know what's happened to your to your connection. Uh, but you are showing on my board, but I'm not hearing you at all. So uh, we need to have that corrected somehow. I'm going to go ahead and play our commercial set right now, and uh, hopefully she'll call back in uh, and be able to continue our conversation. We've got about two minutes of two and a half minutes of commercial set. Oh, here she is. She's looks like she's back. Hello. Oh, there we go. Is that you? Now you're back. I am back. I have no idea what happened. Suddenly, my my cell phone went dead. So thank goodness, I'm one of those weirdos who still has a landline. Oh, good. Well, I'm glad you do too. Well, uh, so I just disconnected your cell phone because it was it was showing up. So I but I wasn't hearing you. Uh, I don't know what you heard as far as uh, my question to you, and, and that was with regard to flash mob. Uh, and I I indicated that uh, I I thought that the, there's always generally some sort of a message. It may be more than pure entertainment, although entertaining. It may there may be a message. There may be some com commercial value involved in in flash mobs. Is that correct? It can be. It depends on the organizers and what they want to do. Um, some companies do use flash mob type events as some type as a promotion for a brand or an event. Um, my troop tends to stay away from that, and we do what we do simply for fun. So it really just depends on the organizer's motivation. So your group and uh, your involvement then is just uh, entertainment and go out and have a good time and entertain people around you? We're primarily entertainment. We are available for hire for people who want to do something with a higher purpose, but that's not something that we organically take on ourselves. Oh, very, very interesting. I, I, I'll be, I'd be interested in, in knowing. Maybe you'll let us know when your next flash mob is going to be appearing. <laughs> I, I can tell you that right now, actually. Oh, really? Go right ahead. Um, our next event is going to be our first flash mob fiction event, uh, where we tell people a date, a location, a time, and a costume, and we give them an MP3 to download in advance, but not listen to. And then everyone shows up at the designated place time, and everyone hits play at the same time, and they're basically given a storyline to follow. So it's like this live theatrical performance where the actors don't know what's going to happen next until, they're, until the recording tells them what to do. So our first flash mob fiction theme is the epic superhero battle. So half of our performers will be heroes, half of our performers will be villains. 
and we're going to watch it play out. Wow. And, and, and that is going on on Saturday, November 17th in Scottsdale, Arizona. If you want more information, uh, you can check out improvaz.com. Wow, that's phenomenal, improvaz.com. Well, I hope, I hopefully uh, this message will get out to some people and, and they can go see your performance. That would be wonderful. Excellent. Let, uh, let's get to our topic of the day, which is intellectual property. Um, I mean, there's so many questions. What is intellectual property? Does everybody that's involved in communicating to the public in any way, shape, or form have intellectual property? Uh, Is all intellectual property something that needs to be protected and so on and so forth? So why don't we start with uh, the very basic, what is intellectual property? Well, intellectual property is something that every business has, and if For most people, if you're putting something out online in terms of like a blog, you also have intellectual property. And there are four main categories of intellectual property, also um, called IP. There's copyrights, trademarks, patents, and trade secrets. So do you want me to go into what each of those are? Well, yeah, why don't we we start there? That sounds like a good idea. What uh, What is a copyright? So a copyright is the rights that you get in in any original work that you create. So a lot of people, when they think of copyrights, they think about books, paintings, sculptures, um, photography, where an artist is involved. Um, But really it applies to any original work of authorship that's fixed in any tangible medium. So that could include um, blogs and software code, uh, things like that. Um, if it's original and it's fixed in a tangible medium, which could be anything from paper to marble to uh, just a computer file, you have rights in your work. And that includes the rights to um, distribute it, copy it, perform it, display it. Basically, you get to decide um, who and where your work, you know, who gets to show your work and where it shows up. That's copyright. Trademarks on the other hand, um, are those names and slogans and logos that go on products and services um, in commerce that tell consumers the quality about the quality of what they're buying and who created it. So, you know, that's so let's look at a company like Nike. The word Nike could be a trademark. The swoosh is a trademark. Uh, When their slogan was just do it, that was also a trademark. And when you have a trademark, you can keep other people um, from using your mark on similar goods. So, but so Nike, we all affiliate, you know, associate with, you know, athletic wear and shoes. So it would be really hard for another company to enter that space and call themselves Hikey or Mikey or something that sounds similar. Or if somebody had the swoosh but just turned it, just gave it the mirror image you probably couldn't stick that on athletic apparel without Nike getting mad at you. So that's trademarks. Okay. Uh, Patents is what applies to inventions. Uh, You know, it has to be something new, something non-obvious, basically something that nobody else has invented before. And when you register your patent, you get a monopoly on it. Nobody else can make your product without your permission for 20 years. So we see that a lot like in the pharmaceuticals where when a new drug comes out, only one company can make that drug for 20 years. And then after 20 years is when we start seeing genetics or genetic generic versions of the drug on the market and it becomes much more affordable. And then there's trade secrets, which is intellectual property that has value because it's a secret. And the company has to be dedicated and take the steps necessary to keep their secrets a secret. Uh, so the big the, you know, trade secret everyone thinks of is the recipe for Coke. Right. You know, um, only, I think, last I heard, only like three people in the world know how Coke is made. And that gives it value to the company because it's kept a secret. Right, gotcha. All right. Let, let's go let's go back briefly to the the, the first two. I've got a, a couple of couple of questions there. Um a a, a trademark. Uh, I was told once by a, a legal person uh that if I can show, for instance, uh that I have a a published interest in the trademark and I can 
and I can and I can show when exactly the first date of publishing was, and so on and so forth. Uh, that I might be able to win the battle, so to speak, with regard to the fact that it's my trademark, even though somebody else has, uh, has infringed on it, without it actually having been filed. Is that the case? Yes and no. Okay. So when it comes to trademarks, if you are just using your trademark in commerce without registering it with the United States Patent and Trademark Office, you and you are the first person to use it, you get the exclusive right to use your mark on your product in your geographic market. And nobody else can enter your geographic area and use a similar mark. So let's say you have a mark that you're using in Los Angeles, and you just have a little mom-and-pop business. Well, your geographic area is probably going to be just in the Los Angeles area. If somebody over on the East Coast, let's say in North Carolina, wanted to open a similar business with a similar or even the same name, they might be able to do it as long as no one's going to be confused that the North Carolina company isn't the Los Angeles company. Now, if you register the mark, you get national exclusivity over the mark regardless of your actual geographic scope of your market. Um, And you can prevent anybody from entering the space. So um, can I tell a quick trademark story? Sure, please. Go right ahead. Okay. Let's talk about the trademark Burger King. When we think of Burger King, we think of the franchised fast food restaurant. Right. But, but that Burger King was not the first restaurant to have the name Burger King. It's really a restaurant in Illinois, and I've seen pictures of it. It looks kind of like a mom-and-pop restaurant, and they were the first Burger King, and they – I used the name first, but they didn't register it. Burger King, the franchised fast food restaurant, was the first restaurant to trademark that name. So the second that they got that trademark, Burger King, the fast food restaurant, could be everywhere in the United States, and nobody else could use the name Burger King on their restaurant. However, this mom-and-pop restaurant was using it first. So they didn't have to change their name, and they got to maintain their market. So the way it stands now with Burger King is the fast food franchise can be anywhere in the United States except for a 20-mile radius around this mom-and-pop restaurant. The original um, Burger King. The original Burger King. The, the mom-and-pop restaurant cannot expand their market beyond that 20-mile radius and Burger King, the fast food restaurant, can't go into that 20-mile radius bubble. All right, let me ask. They have to stay within that 20-mile radius, the original Burger King. Yes, they uh, do. So what happens if the the original restaurant, Burger King, goes and goes to within a 19-mile radius and puts up another store? Can they do that? They would have to make the argument that they're not expanding their market. Uh, I could see the Burger King franchise making the argument that by opening another restaurant, that they're making another 20-mile radius around that second restaurant Mm -hmm. and therefore expanding their market beyond that 20-mile radius. So I would, if I were the mom-and-pop restaurant and I wanted to open a second location, I would do it under a different name so that I wouldn't worry about Burger King franchise and their millions and their probably very expensive attorneys coming after me. Exactly. And, and those big those big companies have very sensitive attorneys. They just can't take a joke, can they? No, I, I don't think they have a discernible <laughs> sense of humor. I think that's part of the job description. <laughs> yeah, no yeah, I, in general, you just don't mess around with those people. Yeah, yeah, I understand. I understand. Let's let's use, uh, for the purpose of these discussions, for, for this part of the discussion at any rate, let's use our name. The Boomer and the, We are the Boomer and the Baby Incorporated. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we are a, a corporation in the, in the state of Arizona. Um, but we do the Boomer and the Babe show. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we also just refer to ourselves as the boomer and the babe. Mm-hmm. Uh, what uh, what rights do I have with that, uh, just in and of itself, just the way I have it now without, let's say that I don't have it trademarked, I don't have it patented or registered or anything, it's just there. Mm-hmm. Uh, just what, there. 
just there. What what rights do I have with that? Because this is on the internet now, and it's, so it's going anywhere. And my my online magazine, uh, Boomer Experience Speaks, as an example, is online and it goes anywhere. So, uh, what what kind of stipulations or restrictions or non-restrictions do I have? <laughs> the internet has definitely made things a lot more complicated. Mm-hmm. So because. It goes everywhere, and so some people, I think, think that because their signal or their content can be read or found anywhere that there's an Internet connection, that that means that their rights extend anywhere. And from what I've seen, that's not exactly the case. You still have to prove that you have an established market. So so you have this wonderful Internet show, Boomer and the Babe, and I would you know, say that likely your trademark isn't just Boomer and the Babe Incorporated, but it's also just Boomer and the Babe. Mm-hmm. And that I would look at, I would probably look at your analytics to see where are your actual listeners or where are people, you know, where are people geographically when they are accessing your content. Um, so I'm going to guess, I'm going to at least suspect that there's a good portion of your audience in Arizona just because you're here and this is where you interact with people. But you may have, uh, you know, pockets uh, all over the United States. Um, intellectual property law is is federal law, so it gets a little complicated once you go outside um, country lines. So, but let's say you have a pocket of listeners, you know, a, a substantial pocket of listeners in Massachusetts um, or Florida or Nebraska. You could make an argument that you'll have a market there, and that. If somebody else tried to use the name Boomer and the Babe for a, a radio show or an internet show um, or a blog, that you could make an argument that, hey, that's trademark infringement because you have established a market there for yourself. Mm-hmm. Well, it's amazing because we have, we have done an, an, an analytics uh, search, and I was absolutely dumbfounded when I saw where people were making a show up and where they were listening from. I mean, it's like outer Slobobia or something. (laughs) (laughs) It was just amazing. I went, my gosh, how do they ever find us? And we have Mm -hmm. people following us on Twitter that are, that their, their Twitter following is written in things that don't even look like letters. (laughs) Uh, And I, and I just go, wow, this is pretty amazing stuff. Uh, And isn't the internet wonderful? Um, yes, it is. In one hand, it absolutely, it absolutely is. There's no doubt about it. Uh, let's use my, let's use our show as uh, as the, the guinea pig here again. Um, when you take somebody's printed word uh, that is undoubtedly copyrighted, like a book or whatever the case mm-hmm. might be, and mm-hmm. you take that and you reproduce that. Uh, without their without their written permission, uh, you can be under uh, trademark infringement, uh, plagiarism, and whatever else that is. Is that correct? That it is potentially correct that you are committing copyright infringement if you're just taking somebody else's content, whether it's out of a book or off their blog, and just strictly reproducing it. Mm-hmm. Um, like if you got on your you know on the show, if you just started reading a book out loud. Right. And that's all you did for your hour was read the book. That would be potentially and likely copyright infringement because the copyright holder of the book gets to decide where his work is performed. Um, however, there is there is a law called fair use, which allows people to quote another source and then build upon it. So. The, one of the big questions in a fair use case is, is what you did a replacement for the original? So would somebody go looking for the book and find your show and accept that as a suitable substitute? If that happens, it's more likely that you committed copyright infringement versus if you came on your show and read a paragraph and then spent the hour talking about or interpreting your thoughts on that paragraph, that's more likely to be um, fair use versus infringement. But these are all those situations are very fact specific, and there's no guarantees in any of those situations that what you're doing is okay. 
Um, now, when we have, uh, as an example, with our Boomer uh, Boomer Experience Speaks online magazine, uh, we ask people such as yourself, who are guests on our show, if they would be willing to contribute to our uh, our publication. And mm-hmm. in many cases, in the vast majority of cases, they do. I mean, we've got we've got articles in a file that we can go to at at some point in the future that we never been used yet in the magazine and uh and we connect them we we connect them electronically to their website and to the show that they did with us now uh, i'm actually uh because they're giving us in some many, many of the cases they're giving us original material in other words they're writing specifically for inclusion into our magazine just like they would at the at Huffington Post or any other place Mm-hmm. Um so what what rights do I have then as the aggregator of that or the publisher of that new information to redistribute it and reuse it in some other format? My first question for you would be what's the contract that you have with your contributors say about that issue? Well, if I don't have a contract, all right, I just say, would you like to contribute? And they say, I'd love to contribute. It was a great show. I really enjoyed it. Uh, what do you What do you want me to do? And and I indicate to them that they like to send me 600 words, a, a JPEG photo, and a short bio, and uh, and we'll publish it in the in the in the online magazine. That's the extent of it. Mhm. That's the extent of it. They write you something and you publish it. Yes. I would look at that. And I would look at the law about works made for hire. Um, The works made for hire law applies to employees who create content as part of their job, but also to independent contractors who create works at the request of other people. So think of it like freelance artists, photographers, um, graphic designers, people like that, but also applies to bloggers. Um, And in... Under the law, it it says if you are an independent contractor, you must have a contract in writing that says that what you are creating is a work made for hire um, for the person you're writing for uh, to get the copyright. Otherwise, the independent contractor retains copyright automatically. Um, So so in um, your situation... If there wasn't a written contract that said that a contract in writing signed that says that the content creator is creating a work made for hire and that you know Boomer and Babe would get the copyright, your writer probably retains the copyright in their work, and so you actually need their permission if you want to reuse it in a different way. Uh, in, into some other publication or put it together in, in some sort of a... Um a gathering of materials on a particular topic and then sell that information as a CD or whatever, I, I'm going to have to do something else. I'm going to have to have a different agreement. Right now, you, yeah, you would need an agreement in advance, or if you wanted to use something that someone had previously created when you didn't have a contract, you would need to get a contract then from the person either to acquire the copyright or to get permission to use their work in this new way. Okay. Um, that that makes perfectly good sense, but because but the only question I was going to have that that prompted uh, uh, to me was, um, do uh, if it's they're they're not for hire. In other words, we're not paying them for this; they're donating this to me mm-hmm. uh, for the purpose of publication. So I don't know how does that play against the uh, the for hire portion. The for hire portion, a lot of people assume, I think, it means that there must be a financial transaction, and it doesn't. Um, You know, people are doing it out of the kindness of their hearts or for the exposure. It still still could be a work made for hire, even if they're not being paid for their work. Okay, okay. So if I'm going to reuse that in any way, shape, or form, uh, send it out, do other things with it, uh, then they... You have to say you have my express permission to do whatever you want with it, basically. I yeah, I mean you know at, at this you know as a as a guest on your show, I'm not your attorney. I am just an attorney, so I don't uh, want to you know I don't want to well, be providing legal advice. But no, 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 if, it, I, I, if I was if that was in the situation that I was in, I you know I would 
you know, cover my behind and right. and take that per- extra step and that precaution. Right, right, and it's, and it's easy enough to do. That's not a problem. Uh, I, right. I, I was just curious because we, we haven't reproduced anything. I mean, they've sent it to us. We've we've published it in the means that we said we were going to. We've not done anything with it. But now I'm sitting here thinking, quite frankly, I'm thinking, well, I've got all this wonderful content. What can I do with this? And I want to <laughs> uh, and I want to want to make sure that uh, that I'm doing it uh, correctly. I don't want to be uh, having a problem later down the road when all of a sudden somebody says you're using my stuff and I didn't say you could do that with it. Right, but but I think you bring up a good point in that the only person who can come after you for copyright infringement is the copyright holder. So if they don't care what you're doing or if it's a situation where they don't even realize that they have rights in the work that you're reusing, they're never going to come after you. So I was in a situation actually where I was doing, I was writing work for somebody uh, who didn't fully understand copyright law and they were reusing my work in a way that um, that I hadn't give them, given them permission to do. And it was a situation where I never signed over my copyright, so I still retained it. So I knew what they were doing was potential copyright infringement, but because I didn't care, it right. didn't matter. Gotcha. They never get in trouble. I understand, I understand. So uh, copyright is just what it says with regard to if it's written – or if it is tangible, you can touch it, you can read it. Is it, is it a case where it has to be uh, readable or listen, listenable? It, it, yeah, basically, I mean, it has to be perce- be able to be perceived. But um, things like copyright, or not copyright, software code is also copyrightable. And oh, no. even if it's just in binary code. Now, I can't read binary to save my life, and most people can't, but it is still copyrightable because it is an original work of authorship fixed in a tangible medium, and it can be perceived you know, using a computer or just printing out you know, the, the code of zeros and ones. Uh, I'm, I'm looking at this list that you sent me, so you know the list of uh, some points that we were going to talk about today, and I can see you got software code, architectural designs, sculptures, library, literary works, blog posts, of course, we talked about, and website content. Those are all copyrightable, correct? Absolutely. So the architectural design here again is something that it would be on a piece of paper or on a com- or on a computer, and it would be. Uh, a blueprint or whatever the case whatever the case might be so it that it really gets it really gets um uh very enco- all encompassing almost i mean there is there what is there that can't be copyrighted is there anything that can't be copyrighted sure let's see like things like patents generally aren't copyrighted because they're protected by patent um, there's there's a couple of rules where if you are claiming something as a patent and then once the patent expires, some people have tried to turn around and use their patent as a trademark. Um, and I know that's not allowed. Um, one thing to know about copyright is that when you have a copyright, your rights in your work last for the for the life of the author plus. 70 years. So once you have copyright, as long as you don't give up those rights, you maintain it for your entire life. Or if it's a business that owns the copyright, it lasts for 120 years. So once you have it, you're generally not going to lose it until, unless you voluntarily give it up. So when is it you, – you hear these things about things expiring and somebody else grabs them. Are we talking about patents, generally speaking? I it could be patents where a patent expires after 20 years and then anybody can use it. Mm-hmm. Um it also could be trademark where um if a company is no longer using their trademark, they change they change their logo, they change their name or a company goes out of business, um a trademark can be considered abandoned if it hasn't been used for 3 consecutive years. And then at that point, let's say a new business enters the arena, they can use that name, even though the audience, you know, the public, may associate that name with a, pot, with a product from their past. And actually, that's something that has been happening, is that people, companies are looking at abandoned trademarks and picking them up, trying to tap into 
the audience that used to buy the product and trying to build their following that way. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of copyright, once once the copyright um, has expired, which it takes the life of the author plus 70 years or 120 years if it's a business-owned copyright, um, at that point the work enters the public domain. And so anybody can use it. So, yes, you do hear about you know, especially things like music um, entering the public domain and then anyone can use it on their, their YouTube video or perform it without any consequence. Um, so you hear about one of the companies I associate closely with copyright is Disney. And Disney's been around long enough that they are becoming concerned that their copyrights in some of their early works is going to be entering the public domain. And so... I wouldn't be surprised if the next time some of their works are going to be up for expiring, that they may petition Congress to change the copyright laws so that their rights and their work will be extended. Can they not extend the copyright themselves or re- reapply for the copyright themselves? No, not I mean, it, uh, the copyright only applies to that original work. Once it's fixed in that tangible medium, that clock starts. So the problem Disney has is that it's a company. So it's that 120 years, and that's a law. So if they want that time to be extended, they need to get Congress to change the law. Versus if it's a copyright that's owned by a person, the copyright goes for their lifetime plus 70 years. So usually by the time you hit that point, those people who might have rights in the copyright you generally don't care if it entered the public domain because all financial benefit that they would have gleaned from the work they've already received, and they're not going to earn any more money at that point. So who cares if it enters the public domain? And they may well be dead. Oh, the person will be dead. Yeah. But right. Yeah. Oh, the, the original owner is long dead. Right. Right. Uh, so let's let's use my circumstance uh, again as this radio show. You're here talking to me on this mm-hmm. radio show, and I have hundreds of people that I've spoken to, and I have archives of their conversations with me or with me and Deborah, and they're up on the archives on Blog Talk. They're up. On, they're archived also on iTunes, which is done automatically uh, mm-hmm. by Blog Talk by the Blog Talk people. Um, what rights do I have to reuse these conversations? Well, let's see. So the original work of authorship is probably the recording. The guests, by being on your show, have at least given, you know, probably permission to, you know, have the recording exist and have it be available. Now let's say you wanted to reuse it in another way. I could potentially see a guest making an argument that you can't because I guess I look at it from a logistic from a logic standpoint first and go, okay, what guest is going to care if you remix it because I'm guessing a lot of your guests be on the sh- are excited to be on the show because they want to share their information and maybe want the exposure for a business reason so exactly. that they would be they would be happy if you reused the work again and gave them more free exposure. So I look at it from that point first and go, you know, who's going to complain? Right. So, I mean, if, we're, if we get on there and we have a, a – let's see, we put – here again, I, I, this is all hypothetical. We've not done mm-hmm. this. And I'm not, I'm not looking for legal advice. I'm only using this as, a, uh, as, the, as the example, believe me, because mm-hmm. I'm not holding you to anything you say here. Because <laughs> uh, I, I know that the advice or anything that sounds like advice is, is going to be worth what I'm paying you, and I'm not paying you nothing. Uh, <laughs> So, uh, but but the, the the point being, I think uh, I want to I want we have any number of people because of the nature of the show. We have so many people that have been on over the period of years that has indicated that have talked about um, caring for their senior parents, finding home housing, and so on, and all the aspects of dealing with the elderly, dementia, Alzheimer's, uh, uh, in home care, hospice care, whatever, all gathered all together. There is so much information that we have gleaned 
And what if we were to take that and put that into a series of CDs, take out the extraneous conversation, group it and put it together, uh, but, as, but we're going to credit them in a second. We're going to say that on January 27th, uh, 2010, uh, Joe, Joe Schmuckatelli was on the show, and he, and he talked about whatever uh, for his, uh, his business, uh, we care, family home care, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to give him credit. We're going to do whatever, give him accreditation, whatever the case might be. We're going to put it on the CD, but we're going to sell the CD. Mm-hmm. Now what happens? Now what happens? So, you know, first because question Because all of a sudden, I, I'm, I'm, put, I'm putting a monetary value on this thing. Right. So, you know, the question I would ask is, this per, is the guest going to be upset that you're now making you know, additional money, you know, off of his contribution? And is this maybe a situation where before you start selling it, do you want to send a mass email to all your contributors who have spoken on, you know, issues and services for the elderly and say, hey, we have this great idea. We would like to do this. Do you have any objections? Would you like to be included? Would you like to be included? And if they say yes, that probably is enough to cover you. At that that point, they've given you permission to reuse what they've provided. And all all this information that we're talking about here and you're giving with regard to um, uh, dealing within the copyright and and patent law and all this kind of stuff, is is all – it all just boils down to one thing, which is a good practice anyhow, and that is cover your six. Absolutely. It's, it's so much easier to to cover yourself on the front end than have to fight for your rights on the back end. Exactly, exactly. Um, what about the use of the the C or the TM or the SM for service mark or something mm-hmm. like that? At what point can you apply those to... Uh, your logo, or the case might, whatever the case might be, or can you apply them at all without having all the legal aspects of uh, of the protection? Okay, well, let's take each one one at a time. So the C in the circle it stands for copyright, and you you get that automatically once you have your original work fixed in a tangible medium. Um, you don't even have to put the C in the circle on it to get copyright protection. You just get it. It's implied. But if you want to make sure that everyone who sees it knows and is reminded that you have copyright rights in your work, you put the C in the circle on it. Um, and that stands for copyright. Um, and that's you get those rights whether you register your copyright with the United States Copyright Office or not. Now, the TM or the SM, uh, TM stands for trademark. SM stands for service mark. TM applies to goods, so products, things that you can you know, buy off the shelf. SM applies to services, but they're essentially the same. Now, you can put the TM or the SM next to your mark, whatever it is, whether it's your company name or a logo or a slogan, um, at any time, and that puts everybody on notice that this is what you're claiming as your mark. Um, some companies have many potential trademarks, but they only put the TM on a select few, whether it's a logo or the company name. And that just puts everybody on notice um, that this is what you're claiming as your mark. So they would be better off picking another mark if they are you know, doing some type of branding on their company. Um, now, the R in the circle stands for registered trademark or service mark, and you can put that next to your name, slogan, logo, etc. once you've registered your trademark or service mark with the United States Patent and Trademark Office. And that means that you've submitted an application, they've accepted it, and at that point, nobody else in the country can use that trademark on their on similar goods and services. So that's how that's the difference between crossing over from the TM or the SM to the R. So the the C in the circle, mm-hmm. uh, TM just as TM or SM just as SM could be adjacent to whatever. Uh, and you don't have to have any registrations for any of those because Correct. those because those are 
basically a claim. In other words, <laughs> I, uh, Pete Peters, as owner of the Boomer the Babe Show, uh, I can put Boomer the Babe Show uh, TM or yes. SM or or C for that matter. Correct. Yes. Yes. Uh, and I could do that with every one of my. Uh, every one of my shows that we produce and that uh, uh, I can do it with making it. I can do it with straight down the middle. I can do it with all of all the various shows that we do. Yeah. And, and any time that that appears, I can use that. Okay, very good. Good information. And mm-hmm. it is just that. It is a claim. It is, uh, and, and, and how do you have to, uh, if somebody comes and tries to use that as well, but you've already claimed it uh, six, eight months, two years, three years before, uh, mm-hmm. how, how do you uh, document that claim as to when it was first used or established? What what do you need to have so you can document that claim? Well, there's a, there's a couple of ways you can do it. Um, one, you want to have documentation of you using the mark in commerce, um, which commerce does not necessarily mean that there's a uh, money being exchanged, but just you're using it in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. So I would look at things like, you know, when did it start showing up on your documents? I would look for documents with dates. I would look at, especially for your show, it's Internet-based. I would look at when did the show start? When was the web page created? When did you start putting the TM on things? Um, there are also services like Tracklight, um, which is a, a company here in Arizona, and they have an intellectual property vault. And for a minimal fee, they will you can file your uh, intellectual property in their vault, and they don't claim it, they don't look at it, they don't do anything to your files. But what they can provide is a third-party record of when you were when you claimed that you owned what you say you own. So in the event that somebody ever starts you know, using a similar mark or claims that they were using the mark first, if it's just you versus the other company, it's a he said, she said situation um, and based on you know, who can produce evidence of when they started using the mark first. If you use a company um, like Tracklight and their IP vault, you have a third party who can come in and say, yes, we can at least say that Boomer and the Babe registered or filed this intellectual property in our vault on this date. Um, so it's just more evidence in your favor that you were using the mark first. Um, uh, that, that's really good information. Uh, the other thing I, I, I want to mention, I want to get, get these uh, commercials in here real quick, these spots. Uh, and then uh, when we come back, I want to talk about uh, what I've heard uh, as a poor man's trademark for a poor man's copyright. I think you probably know what I'm talking about, but let's uh, let's have that discussion when we get back. We'll be right back in about two and a half minutes. Boomer and the Babe are the publishers of Boomer Series Books. Our authors have their own shows on the Boomer and the Babe Network. We encourage you to listen. Ron Naraki, author of the forthcoming book, The Ten Commandments of Investing, is the host of Wealth DNA, a financial show about real estate investment. Learn how to build and manage your portfolio. Ron hosts the show, and he always has good information to pass along, as do his guests. Listen to Wealthy A on the second and fourth Monday of the month at 8 a.m. Arizona time. Tom Liggering's another Boomer Series author. His book, Success or Failure, The Choice is Yours, is the basis of the show he does with his broadcast partner, Dr. Terry Munther. Listen to Success or Failure with Tom and Terry on the fourth Wednesday of every month at 9 a.m. Arizona time. Learn how you can maximize your performance in business and in life. The methods you employ can either help or hinder. The choice is yours. Before you book your next round of golf in Arizona, go see what golfers just like you are saying about the courses you want to play at golfmix.com. While you're there, write a review of the last course you played and get $10 off your next purchase at Vans Golf Shops and enter into our Greenskeeper of the Year contest for a chance to win a foursome at the home of the Waste Management Phoenix Open, the stadium course at TPC Scottsdale. So check out Golf Mix, Arizona's leading golf course review site and mobile app. What are you waiting for? at golfmix.com.
The Boomer and the Babe are proud to be affiliated with Valley View Community Food Bank, where the food is always free. Valley View is now serving Phoenix from their new 36,000-square-foot location at West Peoria and 107th Avenue in Sun City, Arizona. The new location houses the Food Bank, Feeding Arizona, and the Valley View Thrift Store. Feeding Arizona delivers food to other food banks and food pantries that are in need. If you're looking for a 501c3 to support, go to valleyviewcommunityfoodbank.com. All donations are welcome, be it food, money, or volunteer hours. No donation is too small. Get a hold of Jesse Ramirez, founder and director, and say, I want to help. Valley View Community Food Bank, where the food is always free. And we're back. It is Friday, November 9th, 2012. This is Making It, produced by and part of the Arizona Boomer Radio Show. And our guest today is Ruth Carter of the Ruth Carter Law Firm. And we've been talking about intellectual property, all shapes and sizes. Uh, before we went out, uh, if, you're, if you recall, Ruth, I mentioned uh, something about the poor man's trademark um, or copyright. And uh, here is what I've been told that it was. You take your information, uh, the name, whatever the case might be, you put it in an envelope, you seal it, address it to yourself, and mail it to yourself, registered mail return receipt. Does that have any bearing or have any kind of weight at all in a legal situation? Unfortunately, it does not. So the idea behind the poor man's copyright has to do with uh, being able to establish when something was created. And so the idea is if you mail it to yourself, you get the date from the postmark um, right. to validate when something was created. So the reason why that doesn't work is that the poor man's copyright at best tells you when the envelope went through the mail. Mm-hmm. Who's to say that you didn't just take an empty envelope address it to yourself, mail it, and then wait until somebody challenged your rights and your work, and then that's when you stuck your work in the envelope and sealed it. Okay. Well, uh, let's just, maybe I didn't uh, specify what I was thinking. Um, I'm saying that you're going to put whatever the heck it is that you're, you want to copyright uh, or your trademark and you actually put it on a piece of paper, put it in an envelope, seal it, and send it. Uh, I mean, you can tell that the envelope has not been opened. Let's let's say, uh, does that does that change your scenario at all? You might have a that might I don't see it working okay. um, because it's hard to prove when the envelope was sealed. I I have never heard of any type of. Um, scientific evidence that will be able to say this is when this envelope was sealed. Now, it might be able to say this envelope has been previously sealed, um, but how do you know that the envelope was sealed maybe to send it and then you didn't steam it open and then right. reseal it? Right, right. Uh, so now you're, now you're talking about by the time you pay for the testing and the evidence, it's costing you a heck of a lot more than it was to have filed a trademark in the first Oh, sh- yeah, definitely. <laughs> you know, filing a trademark or filing a copyright is much cheaper than what you would ever pay to have an expert witness um, test, you know, be able to do tests and testify about when an envelope went through the mail. And then we get Ruth Carter in, and Ruth Carter says, well, I really have no way of knowing. <laughs> exactly. And Versus so- it, only co- it only costs $35 to register a copyright and a couple hundred dollars to register a trademark if you do it yourself. Right. Well, that brings up another point. Uh, obviously, it's always best to have legal counsel uh, helping you with these various items whenever uh, whenever you possibly can. And let's say you just can't do it. You don't have the money. And and it's everything you can do to uh, – and, and here again, the logic tells you that if you've only got $35 – Mm-hmm. And you're trying to and you're trying to start a business with thirty five dollars. You're probably in deeper deeper trouble than you would ever realize. Anyhow, but but uh, but let's let's say for whatever reason the guy says, "Hey, I ain't got the thirty five bucks. I don't have the hundred bucks." Uh, uh, 
I don't I don't have the attorney fees, but I do have the thirty five or the hundred. Can somebody do it well enough to cover themselves? Yes. There are people who register their own copyrights and their own trademarks without using an attorney. Um, I recommend reading up on it in advance um, so that you know what you're doing. I know that the uh, U.S. Patent and Trademark Office puts out a series of videos that teaches people about the basics of the trademark process and what to expect. Um, I would tell someone to at least do their research on what is and is not a trademarkable uh, trademark. Because just because you apply for it doesn't mean you're going to get it. So you don't want to waste your money either. Um, The same with copyright. Um, Registering a copyright is a fairly simple process. Um, You know, my mother has registered her own copyright. So if she can do it, anybody can do it. But not everybody wants to go through the process of learning or they're afraid that they're going to do it wrong, and that's when you hire an attorney. Or if it's a larger company, that's when you start needing to have an intellectual property strategy and that's when you you know bring in the big guns for that but if it's just a simple hey i i wrote a poem i wrote a book i my mother wrote a song and i just want to copyright one work you can do it yourself yeah yeah it's it's uh something that uh probably is worth worth the time and and the money um yes and there are and there are even law firms that will teach you how to do it for less money than what would it cost to um, do it for you. So there are other ways to make it work. Mm-hmm. Okay, very good. And worst case scenario, you, you can at least make sure that you've got your claim with your C in the circle, your TM and your SM, just to give you some form of claim anyhow uh, to the work. Oh, yes, you can do that. The issue, at least with copyright, is... The rule is you must register your copyright within three months of publication or one month of the infringement occurring, whichever happens first, to get the maximum amount of financial damages when copyright infringement occurs. So if you're somebody who thinks that you might that you, who thinks that your work is so great that somebody might copy it and that you're going to want to sue them for all their worth um, and get your attorney's fees paid in the process, that's when you really want to be mindful about registering your copyright within the three months of publication. Um, Otherwise, if all you're ever going to do for somebody, um, if they commit copyright infringement, is send a cease and desist letter, the timing isn't as important. Uh, Let's let's talk about costs. Uh, I'm not asking you to divulge your rates, but uh, typically speaking, uh, how much does it cost in a in a range for uh for legal counsel to help you file your copyrights and patents and so on and so forth uh other than other than the fees for the for the the documents with the government and then also how much does it cost to defend yourself in an infringement case so my um i remember my trademark uh, law professor is a litigator, and he said to take your claim from all the way through a court case on a trademark case. He said expect to pay a million dollars. Yeah, so it gets very expensive quickly in intellectual property cases. Um, in terms of registering, it, the price is going to vary depending on which law firm you use. Um, for copyrights, you might be looking at you know, under under two hundred dollars to to do just to do one copyright, uh-huh. um, or you know, depending on how expensive your lawyer is, it could be several hundred dollars. Uh, trademarks, I would expect the price to start around a thousand dollars to register a trademark, and that's because it can take up to a year of discussions between the attorney and the trademark office to get all the way through the process. Versus a trademark, generally, you just send it in, pay the money and they generally just give it to you. Patents, on the other hand, are the most expensive. And I've heard, I I would plan to spend thousands of dollars, several thousands of dollars to get a patent. I recently spoke with someone who said his company spent $25,000 getting their patent all the way through. So uh, if you just need a provisional patent, that's, much cheaper from what I understand. I am not a patent attorney, nor do I play one on TV. Um, 
So, you know, if you were sleeping the Holiday Inn Express, you'd be able to do it tomorrow. Oh, well, that's everyone knows that. <laughs> I'm sorry. Go ahead. So, but, so, yeah, but patents are much more expensive. and So, yeah, if you're going to go that route, be be ready to spend several thousands, if not tens of thousands of dollars in the process. Well, I know that to be the case because I a year, I mean, many years ago, I came up with a gizmo, and I figured, man, this has got to be the greatest gizmo since Mother's Milk, and uh, and I took it to a uh, a patent attorney, and he looked at it, and he started to change the diagram and started to do this. Well, maybe it worked better if you did this, and better if you did that. I go, okay, okay, and then I said, what's this going to cost me? And he gave me the price, and I went, you know what, that gizmo is that not important to me anymore. <laughs> <laughs> All of a sudden, I lost interest in my gizmo. Uh, it, it was it was pretty interesting, really. The way that all went down, it was a question of the pocketbook, you know. Uh, so it, I I understand what you're saying with regard to patents because, it, and he told me too. He said it can take years before this thing gets through the process. Absolutely. Now, on the other hand, we have had a uh, uh, we have had a. a a trademark. Uh, we have had something trademarked, and um, part of the process was the design of the trademark, mm-hmm. also the colors of the trademark, uh, mm-hmm. and even specifying where the colors appear by by actual measurement, mm-hmm. and, I, and and a statement defining it that further. And I just went, oh, man, all I wanted to do was say this was mine. <laughs> 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 and, uh, yes, but they have to differentiate what you want to claim is yours from everybody else's from everybody else's application. So that's when little words start mattering. I I do understand. I do understand. And so now I can also understand after being through this on a very very limited basis uh how it is and what it must be when Pepsi changes their trademark or Coke changes their trademark or they add another trademark. I mean, it's just unbelievable the stuff that uh uh that they must go through and the and the outrageous prices they must pay. Of course, they've got a whole department that does that for them, but that are probably right. on a retainer, but nonetheless, the fees would be astronom- astronomical for the average person. It can, yeah, it can get expensive fast if, if you're doing something more complicated with colors and logos versus if you, all you want to do is trademark a name where it's just you know black and white word on paper. Um, that's much simpler. So, yeah, you have to look at exactly what you want to do and how complicated it's going to be before you can start guesstimating what it's going to cost. Right. Now, what types of work are do you do? You do trademark and copyright, correct, but not patent? Correct. I Yes, I am not a patent attorney, have no desire to become one. Um, but I do copyrights, I do trademarks, and I work on the front end most of the time. So I help people identify what their intellectual property is and what's the best way to register and protect it. Okay, so you're going to be the attorney for the business entity that is developing their trademark or copyright. Exactly. Okay. And then I can go as far as if someone, if they start suspecting infringement, we can start talking about how are we going to respond. And so I can do cease and desist letters, uh, Digital Millennium Copyright Act takedown notices. Um, I can do everything up to litigation, and then that's when I let someone else take over. Gotcha. Okay, so hopefully you can avoid the litigation and you can make it so that it doesn't go to litigation, that it settles, and then if it goes beyond that, you you have somebody else that you can turn them to. Exactly. My goal is to help keep people stay out of court. Right. Okay, very nice. Very good. Well, we're down here to the short rows. Uh, Ruth, I tell you, this has been a really quick hour as far as I'm concerned. Um <laughs> I really appreciate all the good and great information that you've given us. Uh, why don't you go ahead at this point before we wrap up, and what we always ask for is your shameless self-promotion. Uh, give us all the information you want people to know about you and your business and how they can get a hold of you, and uh, uh, when's your dinner time so they don't call you then. Uh, you know, <laughs> Whatever you'd like to tell us. Okay, so my shameless self-promotion. I am Ruth Carter. I'm a licensed attorney in Arizona. My firm is Carter Law Firm. My website is carterlawaz.com. My email address is ruth at carterlawaz.com. 
My book, The Legal Side of Blogging, How Not to Get Sued, Fired, Arrested, or Killed, is available on Amazon. And my phone number at the office is 602-644-1701. And my Twitter handle is rbcarter. Very good. Well, thank you very much, Ruth. I look forward to having you back again on Making It and uh, having some other conversations with regard to things that businesses need to know about. Uh, maybe we can talk about things that, like contracts and uh, <laughs> those very interesting situations because uh, I know there's a lot of things that go into uh, contracts. Uh, <laughs> yes, and, there are. <laughs> and uh, you have to make sure you're – it's all about covering your six, as I said earlier, and, and you got to make sure that that, uh, that backside is, is protected. And exactly. Really, all right. Well, very good. Thanks again, Ruth. I'm going to give you a, a quick call here right after uh, after I close off the show, and uh, we'll uh, we'll be talking to you uh, talking to you real soon. Have a great rest of the uh, day, afternoon, and uh, uh, we'll see you again soon. I'm sure at one of the functions that you and I uh, attend from time to time, and uh, uh, enjoy the rest of uh, the rest of your day. Oh, thank you so much for having me on the show. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Take care now. This is uh this has been Arizona Boomer Radio's presentation of Making It and today's guest has been Ruth Carter. You can contact her at Ruth Carter Law Firm. Uh she obviously is very well uh very very well educated on the things involving small business. So if you have a small business and you are in need of legal assistance, uh, hopefully to avoid some of the pitfalls that we just talked about, uh, please give Ruth a call. It'd be well worth your well worth your time. So uh, until uh, we have another program, uh, we'll be back again next week. Have a great weekend, everybody. Uh, we'll be back this afternoon with uh, the Boomer the Babe Show, which will be an organization that deals in the manufacture of custom vans for the disabled. And uh, that'll be an interesting show as well. So join us then if you can. That'll be at 11 o'clock Arizona time. And uh, have a great day, everybody, and we'll be getting back to you real soon. Take care. You've been listening to Arizona Boomer Radio with Pete Peters and Deborah Brown. Arizona Boomer Radio is produced by the Boomer and the Babe Incorporated and can be heard Monday through Friday. You can sign up for their online magazine at boomerandthebabe.com. To reach the Boomer and the Babe, email host at boomerandthebabe.com or friend them on facebook.com slash boomerandbabe. And on Blog Talk, you can friend them at blogtalkradio.com slash boomerandbabe. Follow their tweets at twitter.com slash boomerandbabe. Be sure to make the second half of your life the best half of your life. And remember, at 50, you're just getting started.